Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Welcome to The Laverne Cox Show, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. I know that the reason people harm me is because they have been harmed and they are doing harm to themselves. So I want to break the circuitry of self-sabotage and I want to teach people healing is possible. And I think that that is why trans people were historically regarded as spiritual leaders because of our mastery of metamorphosis. And what I mean by that is that this world teaches us that everything is fixed and cannot be changed. And then trans people enter and we say, we can change everything. In 2016, I was a part of an amazing documentary on HBO called The Trans List. And featured in that documentary was a person by the name of Alok Bade Menon. And the moment Alok came onto the screen, I was enchanted by their charisma and their deep, deep knowledge. I felt like a loke was just connected to some energy, some spirit that is beyond. A loke is a gender non-binary writer and mixed media performance artist. They are the author of Femme in Public and Beyond the Gender Binary. In 2019, they were honored as one of NBC's Pride 50 and Out Magazine's Out 100. They have presented their work in more than 40 countries. I knew that I wanted to have a conversation on this podcast about gender nonconformity and a local take us beyond. And that's where we need to go, honey. Please enjoy my conversation with the Loke Laid Minute. Hello, Alok, and welcome to the podcast. How are you feeling today, darling? I'm feeling so enthusiastic about talking to you. Aw, that's so sweet. I always love chatting with you, and it was really important for me to have you on the show because I wanted to talk about non-binary folks and gender non-conforming folks and as a trans woman, as someone who identifies in a binary way for us to support our gender non-conforming and non-binary siblings and so many trans binary people don't. And thinking about gender non-conformity is a great opportunity for everyone. And I was reminded of that reading your book, Beyond the Gender Binary. One of the things you say early on in your book is that you contend that the gender binary exists to create division and conflict, not to celebrate creativity and diversity. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you mean there? Absolutely. So I think a lot of people mistake moving beyond the gender binary as erasing people's right to identify as men or women. 
And that couldn't be farther from the truth. For me, binary means it's more about how you're policing other people versus how you narrate yourself. So Mm. someone who's perpetuating the binary is telling other people, you can't be non-binary or this is what it means to be a man or a woman. So moving beyond the gender binary is not about erasing man or woman. It's actually just about saying man and woman are two of potentially infinite options. And I think that there are many men and women who believe that. And I actually have been doing a lot of work during quarantine historically to understand like why people are so threatened by this. Mm. And what I've actually been discovering is that the gender binary actually was instituted to hurt all of us. Now we often talk about it just hurting non-binary people, but I'd love to like explain to people that actually historically it was created as a way to control everyone. So a great illustration of this is the history that you and I know well of the masquerade laws. So in the United States from the 1840s until the 1940s, across the country, trans and gender variant people like us would be thrown into prison simply for existing in public. Our community referred to these laws as the three article law, meaning you had to wear at least three articles of clothing associated with your assigned sex. Otherwise you could be thrown in prison. So you and I would be both thrown in prison as female impersonation. And what's so insidious about these laws is they would often publish in the newspapers our names alongside our photos. So this could actually like ruin people's entire lives. And what makes it difficult for us is that when we try to find historical records of why people did this, they didn't want to tell the police. So oftentimes when people were arrested, they would be asked, why are you wearing women's clothes? And they'd be like, I don't know. (laughs) And that refusal is actually resistance because they knew that their words would be used against them, right? Mm. But what most people don't understand is that the cross-dressing laws were put into place actually to control cisgender women Mm. because the respectable cisgender woman was supposed to just stay at home in the domestic sphere and only men were allowed to navigate the public So pants became an illustration of saying men are somehow more rational, literal, agentic, and women have to stay at home and reproduce and not actually have political thoughts. So actually, this gender binary was created to confine women to the domestic sphere and to deny women the right to vote and to say that men were the rational people who could roam. So what this looked like is in the Western expansion of the United States, a lot of times women would just wear pants and quote unquote dress up as men so that they could go outside. Mm. And this is just another of many examples of being like, when it was created, the binary was actually fundamentally about misogyny. It was literally about saying women aren't competent, aren't smart, can't be political subjects. And so now when we're pushing against the gender binary, it always hurts that there's so much pushback that comes from women and and, and feminist-identified women, too, is, is, is the troubling right, part. Right, right. It's really awkward. <laughs> yeah, and I, I love that you said that because I come to so much of this from an intersectional feminist perspective that the gender binary is deeply harmful to those folks who identify as women and that there's always been a relationship between the gender oppression that trans and non-binary people experience and the gender oppression that cis women also experience. So we really are all in this together. And you're very explicit in your book that the gender binary is all about power. The First thing I think about is that there are people out there who are like, well, what about biology, right? And that, that's exhausting. But what would you, 
and I have my things I would say to that. But what would you say to those people who would be like, men are this and women are this based on chromosomes and gonads and ovaries and all these things? Right. I would say this reflects the failure of the American public education system on two fronts. Work. When it comes to biology and history. Mm. Because last time I checked, if you consulted actual biologists, there are thousands of accredited scientists who say there's no biological basis in dividing people into one of two sexes, let alone genders. So that's not consistent with science. Actually, biological refers to living matter, which means you and I have biological ears, biological noses, which means that there's more biological variance and anatomical diversity among females than there are between females and males. Because news check, actually women have different bodies and that's okay. What people are saying when they say biological is actually reproductive or fertility. And that reduction of women's bodies to their reproductive role is misogyny. Actually, the framework of biological sex was created by exclusively cisgender white men as a way to deny women political rights. They would say, anatomically, you were meant for reproduction, not to think. That's why you can't go to school, because that will ruin your menstrual cycles. So it's so awkward that people use this term biology without recognizing what that actually means scientifically, and how that's been levied historically. So for me, I think what I'm trying to do with my work is to always have history enter the chat and to just be like, actually, my faith comes from the fact that I know what was before. And so it's ironic to me, and I, I wanted to speak to this too with your work with disclosure because I think it's so important. It's ironic to me that every, it feels like decade, we're having the same ass tired conversation. Like, it's like with your career, people were like the first trans and you were literally there being like, actually, <laughs> there were these girls that came before. And it feels like our job as trans people in so many ways is to do that historical due diligence because cis society always wants to erase our history and position us as new, mm. even though we've been cutting up saying these things for literally centuries. Recently, I read a biography of Sylvester, the Queen of Disco. Oh, yeah. And I'm obsessed with Sylvester. I'm <laughs> obsessed interviews... with Sylvester, too. Oh, my God. Yes. yes. In interviews, people would say, Sylvester, you're in drag, right? And Sylvester would say, no, I'm just Sylvester. Even before the language of non-binary, Sylvester was templating what that could look like. And it makes me so angry because they were one of the most mainstream celebrated Black queer performers in the world. And yet that knowledge gets erased 10 years later. Like, it's just not okay. Wow. I am so glad you're here. You've just said so much in such a way that, like, I didn't even really have the language for. And one of the, it's a Bell Hooks quote, I think, from Yearning, but I'm, I don't know if Bell said it first. She says, our struggle is also one of memory against forgetting. And that piece of history, that piece of we've always been here, that piece of reducing people to reproductive organs, and I think that is, it's so objectifying and it's so, and it's so inherently misogynist. And I'm so glad you've so clearly laid that out for us. I would love for people who don't know this to know that Laverne is also a theoretical scholar. And I will never forget watching you live in conversation at the New School with Bell Hooks. And she was talking about white capitalist uh, heteropatriarchy. Her um, phrase actually is, is imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy. I'm a bell hook. Yes. Person. And you made the intervention and you added cis in front of that. 
I said cis-normative, heteronormative, imperialist, white yes. supremacist, capitalist, patriarchy. Go on alone. <laughs> and I don't think people understand what that means. And I would really mm. like to break that apart. Trans women and trans feminine people are actually expanding feminism, contributing to feminism, because we're insisting that womanhood and femininity don't have to be coupled with reproduction. We're actually saying that there's a spiritual power, essence, poetry to woman and femininity that don't have to be part of the reproductive paradigm. And instead of cis women saying, thank you, this is really powerful and amazing, they double down oftentimes on cis men's definition of what a woman should be. So in so many ways, what trans women are offering is a feminist vision of womanhood. And that's why it's a travesty to me that in 2021, there's so many bills trying to criminalize our community, resourcing the rhetoric of feminism. This is not just about theory for us, right? This is about actual policy that's discriminating against trans women, intersex people, non-binary people using this bullshit. Yeah. For me, it's always important to note that there are queer, cis, feminist, you know, women and women of color who have challenged the ideas of essentialism that would reduce women to biology and to reproduction. So trans and non-binary feminists are in that tradition. I always like to not erase the brilliant work by so many, particularly Black feminists and queer feminists and queer Black feminists who've been doing work for decades, who have laid out this anti-essentialist project for us as a blueprint. I mean, I've always identified as a feminist and to be able to be in this space of anti-essentialism is so crucial for me. In my college lectures, I would always um, talk about Sojourner Truth first and her sort of proclamation, Ain't I Woman, and from 1851 and at the Ohio Women's Convention in that proclamation and talking about the history of the sort of devaluation of Black womanhood in America and how there's there's a story that she was making a speech in Indiana, I think in 1856, and someone yelled from the audience accusing her of being a man. And she like opens her blouse and reveals her breast. So that the, so that blackness was during abolition I mean, in 1851 was associated with maleness and womanhood was associated with white women. And black women were like, wait, hey, ain't I a woman? And in that context, I also linked that history of the devaluation of black womanhood with what Judith Butler talks about in Gender Trouble when she quotes Simone de Beauvoir, when Simone de Beauvoir says, one is not born a woman, but rather becomes one. And Butler says, um, if I can recall correctly, it's not clear that the one who becomes a woman is necessarily female, right? So there's been a critical framework laid out in the history of feminism where we can claim claim our gender on our own terms. And that's really, for me, what it's really all about. 100%. Yeah. And let's also wake it up and say the same rhetoric of y'all aren't real women was first levied against Black and Indigenous women by white feminists in the early 20th century. So white women would not take the issues that Black women were bringing up, like miscegenation, lynching, racist sexual violence, as women's issues, because they believed that Black and Indigenous women had to become part of the cult of true womanhood or pious, respectable women. And what I've been unearthing in my research is actually white women would set up associations to go into Native American reservations and indigenous communities and teach indigenous women how to iron and how to wear white women's clothing as a way to civilize them into patriarchy. So the idea became because you're part of a savage matriarchy, You have to enter patriarchy before you can be a feminist. And here we are in 2021 with trans-exclusionary feminists resourcing the same rhetoric 
that Susan B. Anthony, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, all of their ilk used against Black and Indigenous women, which is why for me, the trans struggle has always been about racial justice. And I know that you've been so eloquent about this from the beginning. And I think that's one of the most heartbreaking and devastating experiences as a racialized trans person is that so many of us, our gender comes from a deep love of our racial and ethnic communities. And yet it's an unreciprocated love often where we are fighting so hard because we understand how white supremacy fortifies these awful gender binaries and norms. And we don't get that same kind of love in response. Oh, Alok, I love you so much. This is so brilliant. This is a good time to take a little break. We'll be right back, though. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? And meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Okay, that's taken care of. Let's get back to our chat. You've spoken so eloquently in the past, and this is already, you've gotten there already, that the struggle for gender equality and gender freedom for everyone, including trans and non-binary people, is linked to an anti-colonialist, anti-white supremacist agenda. So can you talk to us about your understanding of how gender was not binary in indigenous cultures all over the world? Absolutely. And I also want to invite people to check out my Goodreads, where I currently have over 600 book recommendations, because what I've noticed is I have done the research. And yet, whenever they have like a white cis person say you don't exist, that's taken as authoritative. Whenever those of us who've actually devoted our lives to doing this work, our credibility is undermined because of what we look like. And I've decided in 2021, I'm not accepting that transmisogyny anymore. <laughs> like, I know what I'm saying, and it comes from a corroborated place. You have 600 book recommendations. Let's just <laughs> 600 book recommendations yes. on Goodreads. And divide it into different reading lists. One of them is colonialism and gender, so get into her. Work. So here's what's really important to understand. One of the predominant tactics of colonization across the world was imposing people into Western gender norms. And I say imposing people because it wasn't just indigenous gender variant people, it was all people. And all people were policed into what white men and white women should look like. The most visible, explicit example of this is cross-dressing legislation. So in India, the British actually passed a law that forbade any public displays of visible gender nonconformity and required gender nonconforming people to register themselves with the police so the police could ensure that they weren't cross-dressing, right? We're talking, this is in the late 1800s. And so the, the caucasity 
of telling me that we are new when actually what we are is disappeared. So what I want us to reframe the conversation is it's not that we're new. This is a struggle that has gone on for hundreds of years. So it's not just that we were visible and then we erased and then now we're visible again. It's just that as history actually goes, they disappear us. And so what I've been trying to ask as an artist is, why do they need to disappear us? And what I realized is in our existence is an alternative. And the way that power works is by erasing an alternative so that people think that the status quo is the only way to live. But in trans existence is possibility. We're actually showing people you get to choose your own family. We're showing people you own your own body. We're showing people you get to choose your own beauty. And in that way, we actually are presenting a radical imagination to what family is, to what community is, to what health is, to what life is. And so what I actually think is I want to reframe the crisis of anti-trans violence as the policing of our life-giving, like as the policing of the world, the beauty, the glamour, the spirituality that we bring in. There's a main reason that part of colonization was also the indoctrination of people into a particular type of Western Christianity and the erasure of indigenous spiritual traditions, which long understood femininity not as weak or docile, but as powerful, ancestral, and spiritual. And in fact, in my research, what I found is a lot of people who were arrested for cross-dressing by the Portuguese Inquisition, who were held in Christian trials, when in those trials would say, this is not, I'm not wearing this because I'm a woman, I'm wearing this to receive God. Mm. They would say, I wrap my head to receive God. Oh. They would say, I put on the skirt to receive God. Oh. <laughs> and so for me, what I really am trying to be more explicit about is, yes, this is about my gender, of course, but also this is about my spirituality. This is how I feel most godly. This is how I feel most divine in it. When I'm getting dressed, I'm making an altar on my body. And if you're going to degrade that altar and you're going to spit on me, that doesn't matter because I know my own godliness. And so what happens when we break out of the cis narrative that we're broken, that we're lacking, that we're absent, and instead we say we are the divine. We say we are practicing our worth and our divine feminine, and that is why we're being persecuted. Alok, oh, you're preaching the word right now. I'm living. I'm getting my full entire life. Thank you, Alok, so much. <laughs> no, I've been saying to trans people for years that in indigenous cultures all over the world, we were revered. My understanding is that Hydra, you wouldn't, um, pre-colonialism, you wouldn't want to get married or, or if your child was not christened by a Hydra or your wedding not blessed by a Hydra, that it would be damned. And so I say to trans and non-binary people, we are anointed and we must claim our sacred space and our sacred place. And what a tragedy it is that we've been institutionally gaslit. Mm. That's the sad part. You know, when you were speaking to me earlier about how even within the trans community, non-binary people are demeaned by people who are identifying as women or men. For me, the culprit of that is what Western eugenics did to our knowledge systems. So what's really important to understand here is that there was an unprecedented coordinated effort in the late 19th century and early 20th century to pathologize gender nonconformity. We actually, and I really want to wake it up for people, people say that we're new, but baby, there were words for us before the word heterosexual was created in the 19th century. In the early 1700s, we were called mollies in the UK. Then we were called pansies. In fact, if you look at the press in the early 1930s, they called us third sexers. They had language for us 
before they even had the language of heterosexual. But even, I mean, if even if you think about Greeks, I mean, I think that right. the term, the problematic term hermaphrodite comes from Hermades, I think. So, so that even if we think about, you know, sort of ancient times, there were, there were folks who existed beyond the binary. And what's deep about so much oppression is that there's just so much ignorance around it. There's a lack of understanding about history, a lack of understanding about biology and science, a lack of understanding about sociology. Oh my God, look! So there was a moment in your book when you talk about, and it just hit me in my gut, when you talked about when you were a kid being bullied and being told that you were a sissy and acted like a girl. I was like, that's exactly, literally exactly what they said to me. And then later on, they called you a man. And I was just, and, and I think you used the phrase too feminine to be a boy into masculine to be a girl. I was like, the irony of that, I've, just, I've always thought about the irony of that in my own life, that like I was called a girl when I was a child, um, and then now people call me a man. And as a way, <laughs> you know, and so it's like you can't kind of win in the system. Do you, can you elaborate on that and what that says to you right now and in, in, in this moment? So there's no consistent definitions for man and woman. They change the definitions of man and woman specifically to exclude us. That's where the power comes in. So they see trans people being able to change our birth certificate, so they change the law. They see trans people being able to modify our, our body or our morphology, so they change the law. So it's actually that there's no static definitions of what it means to be a male and female. They invent those definitions specifically to exclude us. And I think it's really important to bring up Castro Semenya in this conversation. Castro Semenya identifies as a woman who's a South African Olympian and continually is told that her naturally occurring rates of testosterone are too high for her to compete in the female category. So what they're saying is we have a predetermined idea of female, which just so happens to be defined around white European women. And then when it comes to black and global South women who often have different distributions of steroid, not sex hormones in their bodies, they get policed out. And that's in a literal example of a project that's existed for hundreds of years where they changed the rules specifically to justify them winning and racialized people losing. And I think Castor not only identifies as a woman, but was also assigned female at birth. So, so she identifies as a woman and was assigned female at birth. So she's, she would be a cis woman by definition, but with very high levels of testosterone. Right. And that's why for me, it's like, there's no, there's no ethical standpoint to policing gender and sex. There, there's no logical consistency. There's no scientific consistency. What there is is trauma. And I think what I was so looking forward to this conversation is you're one of the few people in a public platform speaking about trauma. And for me, trauma is the origin of everything. So then the question for me becomes, how are people so traumatized that they mistake freedom as a threat. And then I began to realize it's not that we as gender non-conforming people are the only ones that are harmed by this binary. This binary has recruited cis people such that whenever they're presented with any alternative, they have to undermine that in themselves and in other people. So then the violence we experience as trans people was templated on what they did to themselves first. It's what the cis women said when they said, no one will love me if I have facial hair, so I'm going to remove every hair on my body. And when I see a gender non-conforming person do that, 
I can't process that. It's cis men saying no one will ever love me if I'm vulnerable, emotional. So when I see someone else doing that, I have to erase them. So then I began to realize there are no such thing as transgender issues. There are issues that cis people have for themselves that they're taking out on us. And I think that energy I was only able to get by doing my own trauma healing work because I was misled into thinking I was broken when from the age of three, I was practicing my truth. My mom has a story that she told me that when I was seven years old, she was tucking me into bed and I said, mom, I'm queer. And I didn't know what that word meant. I read it because my dad was brought up in a British colonial education system. So we read children's literature from the UK, which used queer as a word for strange, but I knew that I was different before I had any language. And so for the audacity for people to tell me that I just made this up for my career, for political correctness, or to undermine other people's no, trans people practice a kind of resonant presence that threatens a world that thrives on scarcity, trauma, and projection. We are some of the most real that there ever was. So what happens is other people project their insecurities because they don't know who they are. They only know who they've been told they should be. Whew, I feel like I literally am sitting here. I'm like, okay, when people ask me about these issues, I'm like, <laughs> listen to a loke. <laughs> so I go, it's, girl, I'm tired. <laughs> girl is gender neutral for me, by the way. Yeah, um, for me too. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm tired. I'm like, I'm just the loke you're giving it, the gospel truth right now. Hurt people, hurt people. And I, I talk a lot about trauma publicly. We've talked a lot about trauma on this podcast. And trauma my therapist defines trauma as too much, too fast, too soon. Mm. And it's really about our nervous systems. When our nervous systems go into survival mode and we go into fight, flight, or freeze, when we're, we're biologically, I think this is the correct term for biology, biologically right, right. programmed, right? Or at least neurobiologically programmed that when we sense a threat, it's, um, our bodies release cortisol, adrenaline. And when we grow out of that dangerous situation, we regulate, we, we sort of come back to our stasis. If we are constantly feeling under threat, under stress. We're not, we're not hardwired biologically to constantly be in that survival place, to constantly release the cortisol and adrenaline. Over time, that can cause disease, can cause illness, adrenal fatigue, all sorts of things. But I think the piece there is not feeling safe. And I think what for me as a trans person of color who's sort of been bullied my whole life, I've been releasing cortisol and adrenaline like all the time because I've never felt safe. And I think people who aren't trans and aren't people of color also aren't feeling safe for probably very different reasons, maybe some of the same reasons. Sometimes they're seeing us as a threat to them. <laughs> like, and I've always, I always like to remind people that feeling unsafe and feeling uncomfortable are not the same thing. Right. If I'm uncomfortable, I talk about bathrooms all the time. Like, right, in in Jim Crow South, you know, white folks were not comfortable with black people using the same bathroom as them, but they weren't unsafe with black people using the bathroom. And, you know, cis women who might be uncomfortable with a trans woman in the bathroom with them, they're not unsafe. They might be uncomfortable in my healing work around my trauma, I have to be able to distinguish between being uncomfortable and unsafe so I'm not constantly releasing those hormones. That is work I have to do. People are lashing out. I think a lot of times people are lashing out at the wrong 
thing. They're feeling threatened and they're feeling unsafe. And so they're lashing out at trans people. They're scapegoating us and they're lashing out at us. Or they're lashing out at immigrants. Or they're lashing out at Black people. And it's like, wait a minute. (laughs) Maybe there is this system. And what you're saying around the gender binary is that there's a system that is oppressing you. What I would say about people who are, you know, in the Midwest, who all their jobs have been shipped overseas, it is not the fault of Mexicans and people from South America who've come and taken your jobs. There is a system that is in place that is not done what it needs to do to protect your job. So instead of lashing out at your fellow citizen, maybe we should be looking at uniting as a people and changing the system that is oppressing us. And now that was my little sermon. Preach, yes. (laughs) Scapegoating is a trauma response. And it just, it really, this is where trauma literacy has changed my life because Mm -hmm. often the political vocabulary is insufficient for me now. Like, I I kind of get bored by a lot of social justice language. It's because it's not enough because the social justice language, and oh my God, this is, oh my God, I'm going to cry because I've been so fed up with politics and like, I just can't do it anymore, but I'm still political. But I think that's the piece. Political language is really limiting. I'm in the space of healing. I'm in the space of like, how do I deal with this trauma? Mm -hmm. How do I deal with like, you know, my shame? How do I heal myself so that I can like go into this next 50 years, hopefully, (laughs) you know, with some, with some sand. Get some help. Right. But this is why I, I connect with you so deeply, Laverne, is that I see us both struggling because we understand that actually the spiritual work is the political work. The healing work is the social justice liberatory work. And we're actually saying the work begins reckoning with our own trauma and with sedimentation of all these legacies and histories in us. How we treat each other and how we treat ourselves is the location of politics. So for me, I'm not as concerned with the rigor of your analysis, what words you have. I'm much more concerned on how are we treating each other? How are we practicing a loving, compassionate, trauma-informed world today? And what this has allowed me to do is to have a very different conversation around trans politics. I am exposed to transphobic violence every single minute of my life. And I respond with love. And people don't get it. But I want to explain that. I'm choosing love not to be the better person. I'm choosing love to heal. Because if I was to be angry at every single person, that would ruin my nervous system. Yes, yes, ma'am. And love actually equalizes me and makes me actually want to live. It gives me joy and beauty and possibility and hope. And why would I ever subscribe to an ideology that makes me feel guilty for hope when it's actually the very thing that makes me survive? And then second, I love because I know that the reason people harm me is because they have been harmed and they are doing harm to themselves. And that I know that weaponizing shame against them doesn't actually do anything, but reinforce their self-sabotage. So I wanna break the circuitry of self-sabotage and I wanna teach people healing is possible. And I think that that is why trans people were historically regarded as spiritual leaders because of our mastery of metamorphosis. And what I mean by that is that this world teaches us that everything is fixed and cannot be changed. And then trans people enter and we say, we can change everything. I hated who I was. I was problematic. I was ignorant. I was messy. I was not in a good place. And then I took life into my own hands and I bemifested myself. If that is not a metaphor, a poem, a truth, a prophecy for this world, that's the gift of possibility that trans people give. You too can change. And Mm. I know you and I both believe this. The reason that I find social justice so concerning right now is this idea of redemption has been completely lost. 
And I actually like, we should start from culpability. We should start from complicity. We are the things that we critique. We are the things that are harming us. But yet we fight because there's still something beautiful, redeemable, and possible alongside that in ourselves and in one another. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, Alok. Oh, there's a few things that came up for me. Um, Cory Booker was on a talk show when he was running for president in the primaries, and he was talking about love and having an ethic of love and like proceeding from a place of love. And the journalist, I won't say the journalist's name, laughed in his face as he said it. Like literally laughed in his face. I was like, wow. He got no traction talking about love. That came up for me when I was listening to you. And then um, a psychologist we just interviewed talked about love. I talk about love all the time. And she talked about how when we're in love, our bodies, instead of those stress hormones, our bodies actually release dopamine and release oxytocin and all these good, you know, feel-good hormones when we're in love and when we feel love. And just this space of manifesting love for myself and maybe for another person or for a thing is literally healing. It's literally taking those stress hormones and bringing them down and replacing them with hormones that are loving in our bodies. And that is something that we all need. And the space of metamorphosis that you just talked about, I think that was one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. This is why I'm not into the cancel culture thing, because it's like people can change and people, you know, I can't change you. You have to make that decision to change yourself, but that is possible. And then how do we also create a space where we're assuming the um, best in people? Um, I think we shouldn't be naive about making generous assumptions, right? But I think if I'm assuming that people are sucking on purpose and people are just corrupt, it's a really dark place to be in. Making generous assumptions about our fellow human beings helps me. Like That helps me. Moving from a place of love helps me get through my life instead of being cynical and sort of jaded and bitter. So this work is individual, but if enough individuals do the work, it can become collective and then we can begin mm, to change mm. ideology and change structures and systems. That you have to get that out. <laughs> I was going to say, my job as a poet is to resurrect the dead things, including love. Mm. And my mm. entire life, I've been shamed as naive, immature for being committed to love. And then I actually realized I need to cultivate my naivety because, of course, a system that is so cruel will diminish, undermine, and delegitimize any alternative as naive, ridiculous, idealistic. And now I actually believe in the possibility of transformation of this world. I believe that healing is possible because look at what I've done in my own life. And that's what healing journey has done for me is that if I could find something redeemable in me, I wanted to die. For the first half of my life, I didn't exist. I was literally a fantasy of what other people needed me to be. I perfected disassociation as my first performance art, which is why so many of us as trans and gender conforming people are so damn good at performance. <laughs> it's because we learn the scripts really early on. And, and transition for me was about realignment. And if I could go from being a ghost of myself to being able to perform and weep and feel every emotion, how dare you tell me that hope is impractical? Because hope is how I resurrected myself from premature death. So I am actually really committed now to an arsenal of militant compassion and compassionate militancy. And I, I reject this idea that we are just somehow 
wrong or, or short-sighted because actually the political traditions that I most learn from, like when I think about the history of cross-dressing laws, our ancestors were arrested 20 to 40 times. It wasn't just like one time, it was like routinely risked and then exposed to sexual violence in prisons, put into mental health institution centers. Why did they keep on going outside? And the only reason I can understand it is they were writing love letters to us. Mm. That is the only way I can understand it. My transform mm. mothers said, I am writing a love letter to those who do not exist yet. And I am trying to create a world such that you can exist. So what that means is that I'm only able to exist because of the love and care of other people. So actually, my love and care creates the capacity for existence for the next generation. And that idea is what propels me to keep going is the more love and the more care and the more intention I put into the world, maybe I can create a world that's livable by the people that need to exist. Mm. Oh, that's so beautiful. When you talked about your being called naive, I immediately thought about the child that lives in all of us and the child who does not know bigotry, that is taught bigotry, but also doesn't know shame, also doesn't know trauma. And sort of tapping into the child in me who's wide-eyed and is filled with possibility. And so caring for that little child, letting her come out and play, um, speaking gently to her, nourishing her, and sometimes, you know, being the adult when I need to be, but letting her have space teaches me so much about myself. Okay, it's that time again. A lot more is coming, though, including our guest, What Else is True? We'll be right back. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? And meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. We are back and we're ready to pick up where we left off. So I, I do want to be a little basic <laughs> and talk about pronouns. I remember when I, when I had my really first close um, non-binary friend who used they, them pronouns. And I remember just having difficulty at the beginning with, with they, them. And I don't anymore. And, and again, one can change. But I had difficulty at the beginning. And a lot of people, I think, still have some difficulty with they, them. I think fewer people than used to. But can you talk about the importance of pronouns and respecting people's pronouns? I would love to say that I had difficulty misgendering myself, which is an experience that people often don't bring up. Tell us about that. (laughs) But you know, when I started to use they, them pronouns, it was a transition for me because Mm. I was just so saturated into the language of male, quote, female pronouns and binaries that it was a new introduction to me. And so I began from humility being like, of course it's difficult, but it's in no way equivalent to the kinds of, institutionalized psychological warfare 
that gender variant people exist in a culture that ritualizes and naturalizes our disappearance. So yes, it's difficult, but that difference you're alluding to between discomfort and actual oppression. So actually what I would argue is the only way that we show up for other people is through inconveniencing ourselves. So in this kind of political vocabulary right now, people are saying defund the police. It just scares people as a framework. You should come up with a more palette. That's not how change works. Change works by actually being made uncomfortable. So what they, them, I think is so productive and generative in doing is halting a conversation and therefore halting an assumption. And that's what we need to attack as a trans movement is the pre-conscious. It's not just about how people are curated on social media. It's what they actually are thinking before they articulate the language. And this is an experience so many of us as trans people know as well. They are just using our pronouns to be politically correct, not because they actually see us for who we are. And I don't want you to use they, them just because it's like you're going to get called out. I want you to use they, them because you no longer see me as a man. And that's what I'm insisting on for trans people is that we have accepted mere acknowledgement as the social justice imperative, when I'm actually, I'm saying, no, regard my humanity. And what regarding my humanity means, recognize me for my complexity, my interiority, and that which can never be rendered visible. Not all trans people are the same because we each have souls. And I'm arguing for bodies, not souls. The next point I want to make about the pronoun conversation to elevate it just because is people will say, it's plural, it doesn't make sense grammatically, etc. And I want to actually say, in this moment of pandemic, one would think that Western individualism could be revisited. Because what we should learn from this is that what's happening over there impacts what's happening over here, and that we create fictional walls everywhere between countries, between genders, between races that are illusory and don't stand the test of life and existence. What they, them, for me, is actually a way of collapsing Western individualism and saying, I am because of many, because it took many loving, caring traditions and peoples. And so when I say I am, I'm representing those people's communities, traditions. When I say they, them, I'm paying homage to Sylvester, to Sylvia, to all the people who came before me. I'm actually saying the only reason that I can exist is because other people existed. Because of they and them. Yes. I'm not trying to extrapolate myself. And so that's why I say they, them as a poem. Every time you, you gender me appropriately, we are convening together in a poem. And the poems that matter most to me are the poems that we speak. And I think they, them as, a, as an articulate poem of a kind of alternative to Western individualism. Brilliant. I knew you'd elevate the conversation around pronouns. <laughs> that was <laughs> Fucking brilliant. Yes, I'm, I, I'm cursing on my podcast. But there's a moment in your book, Beyond the Gender Binary, you write, the gender binary is like a party guest who shows up before you've had a chance to set the table. I love that. Can you elaborate on that a little bit to wrap up? So the thing is, people still think that babies are born male or female. When actually we're slowly starting to say, okay, maybe not all babies are born straight. That's a cultural imposition we put on. But when it comes to gender and sex, we haven't done that due diligence. The truth is we're all born and then we become after the fact. But what the gender binary makes you think is that our organic default biological, as they say, self was male. 
Laverne and I were not born males. Period. Period. And and to really understand trans life, you need to break out of this paradigm that we were biological males, quote unquote, that transition, like, e, that's all literally <laughs> cis nonsense. Okay? We were born Alok and Laverne, respectively. And culture and society came in and accrued various meanings to what we were giving and what was given. And so when I'm saying the gender binary shows up unannounced, it, it, it structures the preconscious that I was speaking before. It literally means that even before you speak, you see a dress and you think woman. But what I want you to understand is most of what we consider now to be feminine was actually worn by people of various genders for hundreds of years. Makeup, wigs, heels, leggings, dresses, lace. So actually every symbol is structured by historical, social, and political conditions. And when you continue to make this as some like organic, innate, like blank slate, that doesn't exist. Your blank slate was socially constructed, darling. Okay. So what I'm trying to get people to realize is that it's not enough. And I think this is the next generation of trans activism and thought. I'm just announcing that now. I hope that it takes it. Mm-hmm. Is it's not just about saying trans women are women, trans men are men. Yes, of course. But it's actually about saying only people can self-determine their own truth. It's about removing the power and the authority of families, of religions, of governments to say you're a male or a female. Instead, what we should be fighting for is ask people who they are, period, and then believe them, period. And I just don't think we're fighting for that as a trans movement because we have settled with our own subordination to cis frameworks. So we still have to use this rhetoric of transition as if we were some gender that was inaccurately ascribed to us. And then now we are. I'm like, no, I've always been a look. I was not the broken. I was not the problem. It was the gender binary that made you misinterpret. So this is not about political correctness. It's actually about honesty and factuality. When you misgender someone, you're not just like being politically incorrect. You're being incorrect. Like, would we go around calling someone named Sarah, Susan? She'd say, no, my name is Sarah. That's the exact same thing that we're doing when we misgender people. We're misrecognizing them. And the final thing I wanted to say is the trauma of misrecognition, just to sort of link it into what we were speaking about trauma before. Unfortunately, people only understand trauma as physical. Like you have to have experienced physical brutality in order to say I've been traumatized. And that's just not how our bodies believe that. Not at all. Actually, our neurological systems don't really differentiate between that. And what I notice in so many of our lives as trans and gender non-conforming people is the trauma of being misrecognized actually like takes a physical toll ultimately, makes us hurt. But I want to be fluent also in saying the trauma of being recognized. And I want to thank you for recognizing me. And it's the anecdote to so many of those centuries of misrecognition. And it's a testament to the power of of loving reconciliation. And I think that's what we exist on this planet to do as trans people, is to see each other for who we are before medicalization, before any of that. I'm saying see each other for our souls, you know? And I wanna say thank you so much for seeing me for my non-binary soul, that I feel like I can wear what I wanna wear and not worry that my identity will be invalidated. Mm. 
that is really what we all want. No matter how we identify in terms of gender, we want to be seen as who we really are. And we need to be seen for who we really are. I like to end the podcast with a very specific question that comes out of my trauma resiliency therapy, actually. It comes from the community resiliency model, and it's based from the idea of both and, that I might be going through something really horrible and awful and traumatizing right now, and I feel that in a very specific place in my body. But somewhere in my body, the sensations are neutral and positive. And if I focus on what's challenging, that's all I can see. But if I focus on what is neutral and positive, maybe I can shift my energy, shift my nervous system a little bit. It's basically about what are the things that help you get through. So, Alok, for you, what else is true? What helps you get through? History. Mm. So often I feel incredibly lonely, like in a physical sense, being the only person who looks like me on a street and having everyone stare at me. In an emotional sense, asking, has anyone ever felt this kind of loneliness? And then I read. And reading for me was a lifeline because I found people who felt the same things before me. And this year, one of my New Year's resolutions was that basically someone in the world has felt your loneliness before. Find your ancestors, become their living memorial. And what I mean by that now is I no longer feel that kind of loneliness. I can say, yes, I've been slotted out of so many predetermined communities, homes, categories, but there are other people at the same time who have also felt with that devastation and we become each other's family. And family is not just for the living, it's also for the dead. So it's about finding intimacy with our ancestors who felt that kind of loneliness. And so that paradigm has changed my entire life because I thought forever that my biggest fear was loneliness. And now I've realized I'm never actually alone. That is definitely a resource, what we would call a resource in the parlance of CRIM or the Community Resiliency Model. Uh, that just made me think about Kristen Neff's work on self-compassion, which I'm obsessed with right now because I'm really trying to be more compassionate to myself. And one of the things she says that is a big component of self-compassion is understanding that we are part of a larger community, that other people are also experiencing the same thing, have experienced the same things that we are. And so that shared humanity, if we can use that and, and say, well, no, you're not the only one who's feeling this right now, that other people have gone through the same things that you have, Laverne, and are going through it right now, you're not alone. And that we can say that to ourselves and give that gift to ourselves. So really what you're doing, according to Kristen Neff's work, is practicing self-compassion, which is so beautiful and biggest <laughs> challenge right now, being more compassionate and loving towards myself. I love you, Alok. You are, you're everything. You really are. And I'm just so blessed that you're in the world, like really and truly. I, whenever you talk about your experiences being outside, being in public and the harassment you experience, I feel that viscerally because I've experienced similar harassment particularly when I was in a gender non-conforming space myself, pre-medical transition, and really to this day. And I just, I, I'm so grateful that you've had the courage to speak it, but it's not just that you speak it, it's the way you speak it with so much love, authority, sense of history, and a connection. It is deeply, you're so deeply connected to the ancestors, to an energy, a power that is greater than you. You are clearly anointed, so beautifully anointed. And I love 
that how beautifully you walk in that. And that is what I aspire to, is to walk more fully in the part of me that is anointed, the part of me that is the goddess inside of me. So thank you, thank you for existing alone. Thank you. I'm a person who really appreciates history and having an understanding of history as a way to kind of understand where we are now. So much of how history has treated trans people is that it's sort of erased us. And so acknowledging history and that we've always been here in really concrete ways, it's like, just fills me with such a sense of connection that does feel spiritual. It feels very, very spiritual. I feel like this episode with Alok was very much church for me. And being trans and and owning my transness is about owning the divine that's inside me. It's bigger than, it's bigger than politics. It's just, it's, it's God, it's God. Sending everyone out there so much love on your journey towards building and healing. Thank you for listening to The Laverne Cox Show. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share with everyone you know. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Laverne Cox and on Facebook at Laverne Cox For Real. Join me next week when we'll be talking to my therapist, yes, my therapist, Jennifer Burden-Flyer, about the therapy that we do together and specifically about the community resiliency model. Until next time, stay in the love. The Laverne Cox Show is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.